So if you're there in 1 Samuel chapter 30, that's page 251 in the Bibles that are provided for you, I want to remind you of a story that takes place in the book of Job, actually in chapter 1. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job had seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, and so that this, was, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Later in that same chapter, we learn that Job lost everything he owned on a single day. Surviving servant after surviving servant came to Job and they told him, you lost all your camels, you lost all your sheep, you lost all your oxen, you lost all your donkeys, and of all your servants, I alone am the left to survive to tell you this. And then he was told he even lost his ten children. Now, it's true that what Job lost in that day will likely never be experienced by you and I. But it doesn't mean that we don't suffer. And that as we suffer, that our loss is not insignificant in God's eyes. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's disease. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's a lost job. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I want you to see and hear from God's Word that there is hope for those who find themselves in a place where they have lost everything and they have nothing left. And we find that in the story of David. We can't know what will happen, but there is kind of this unwritten law, right? Bad things will happen. It's just a matter of when and in what shape. Life here on this rock is marked by toil and trouble. Now, it's not a very inspiring message, is it? Well, as we look at our text this morning, we remember, if you remember back in chapter 29, David and his men were, being, were following the Philistines whom they had aligned themselves with and were heading out to war against Israel and God graciously delivered David from having to raise his sword against his countrymen. And in chapter 30, what we find is that as David and his men return back home from this near disaster, they discover a real disaster. Their hometown is is charred and burning. Nothing remains of their homes but ashes. And their family members... Their loved ones, their wives and their children, they're all gone. There's not even a carcass there. That means that someone has taken them and led them away as slaves. All the possessions that they had were taken from them. And this is the reality of David and his men as they return home. And so we see in chapter 30 that our text, I want to show you that our text is divided into two sections. And they're not equally balanced. So the first section is verses 1 through 8 where they discover how much they have lost. David and his men's devastating loss. And then, verses 9 through 31, 
we watch as God graciously restores what had been taken. So the question that I want to ask you this morning is, what will you do if you find yourself in a situation where all that you loved or held dear, or even something not of that magnitude, but when you feel as though you've lost everything that matters to you, what will you do when you find yourself in that situation? Here's what I'm hoping you will see. You will see from this text this morning that only God can strengthen the discouraged and restore what has been taken. So as we look at verses 1 through 8, when you experience loss, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Now I'm going to unpack that in two parts, okay? So verses 1 through 8, when you experience loss, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Let's look at our text this morning. It says, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Let's just stop there for a moment and let's look and see what happens. So we've already seen in verses 1 and 2 how they come to Ziklag on the third day after leaving the, uh, the Philistines in Aphek. Chapter 29 tells us where they were located, and it's some 50 miles north of Ziklag. Given the terrain, as you can imagine, even living here in the hills, you can go in a straight direction, but you're going up and down, up and down over hills, It's not a smooth route that David and his men had to follow. But before going any further in verse 1, than just that David and his men come on the third day, the narrator has to interrupt us. Like a good reporter, he wants us to know things as the reader, things that David was about to discover. It's the who and the what. So in verse 1, we're told that the Amalekites had attacked southern Judah, the Negev, And Ziklag, in particular, a city, a village in that area, it was David's home, and it was actually in the Philistine territory. And then we're told the what. At the end of verse 1 into verse 2, we're told that they totally overcame and overpowered the city. They destroyed it and took everyone and everything in it captive. 
Now, if we remember who the Amalekites are, we know that back in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, God had told Saul to destroy them. Would this have happened had Saul obeyed the Lord's commands? Well, there's no way to know that. But it is something that we need to understand, that when you do disobey God, there are consequences for it, and those consequences may not always be experienced by you. The Amalekites were known as a people who conducted slave trade. And so that's why they didn't kill the women and the children of the Israelites they captured. Thank the Lord that it was the Amalekites who did this and not another of Israel's enemies who would not have shown such intent. So again, already at the beginning, we see that God is in this, even if it's a subtle thing, the fact that it was the Amalekites and not another warring tribe who did this. Now, what may seem small to those of us who are not suffering is often huge to those who are suffering and they get just a taste of cool water, just a breeze of warm air, Just a glimpse of a sun ray on a cloudy day. When you are suffering, you see small things as big things, right? Small evidences of God's grace. They encourage you to keep going. They give you hope. And this is important. This is an important truth because as we care for one another, as members of South Canyon... We need to enter into the suffering of our brethren and we cannot appreciate the grace that God intends for us to be with one another and to serve and care for one another if we are not aware of how we can celebrate his work in each other's lives. So sometimes it may take the simple form of a phone call or a text message, a a visit to someone's home, companionship, just a conversation over coffee that seems so small to you that literally breathes life into a brother or sister who's struggling. Just taking a walk, listening as someone unloads their burden, babysitting a a couple who may be struggling with their marriage so that they can get time away to talk and date one another, As a single person, folding into a married couple's lives or uh, bringing young people into your life to serve and care for them, it is by knowing one another that we can truly understand and encourage one another. And so while the fact that it was the Amalekites who did this and not another thing, another tribe or another people group, we need to see that there are small ways in which God is working and understand that those may be the very ways in which he's calling you to serve your brothers and sisters. Look at verses 3 and 4. You see the shock and the awe of what has taken place. Twice in verses 1 through 3, the narrator tells us that the city has been burned to the ground. And twice he tells us that all their loved ones had been captured. Why does he do that? It's to make the impact so that we are very clear that they have lost everything and that we might feel the totality of their loss. There was nothing left but ashes. I don't know if you've ever been in that place in your life. I don't know if some of us may be there right now. And what I hope in my prayer is that this would be a season, if you are there now, that you are not there alone, 
but that you would see that God intends for you to cling and hold fast to him and to lean on your brothers and sisters who are around you. Verse 4, David and the people who were with them, they wept until they could weep no more. They had no more strength to mourn their loss. And what's interesting is that the text, without minimizing the suffering and the loss of these other men, it zeroes in on David. So in verse 5, we're told that he lost his two wives and that the, the, the narrator shifts his attention to David he, as the leader, as God's anointed king, as the one to whom the whole story is built around, he shifts our attention there. Consider for a moment how upset these men had to be so that we find at the beginning of verse 6 that they were talking of stoning him because of the grief of their loss. I don't know how they would feel. I can only imagine. Maybe they were, David, we didn't want to do this. We never wanted to land in the Philistines' land, and now we're here. We certainly were not in favor of going up to wage war against Israel with the Philistines, but you led us up there. I mean, who knows the things they were throwing in David's face at this moment? Who knows the guilt that David perhaps even felt. Man, am I out of God's will by leaving Israel, the land of God, the land of promise, and fleeing from Saul to the Philistines, have I brought God's judgment upon these men? Have my actions led to these things? I mean, this is, this is a really tense moment. These men had been physically preparing themselves and mentally preparing themselves to fight in a war they didn't want to be a part of. And God mercifully relieved them and delivered them from that, which no doubt they were extremely grateful. And so in their excitement, they make the 50-mile march in just two days, and they are so excited about seeing their families, but as they cover the rise and they cross that, that last hill to look down upon Ziklag, they see nothing left but smoldering embers. No doubt this mental and emotional roller coaster was a wild ride. Their fear, their fatigue, and their exhaustion led them to blame David. So much so they were willing to kill him. Talking about it. And I don't know if you noticed this in your reading of this chapter this week, but look at the end of verse 6, because this is where everything changes. The end of verse 6 says that David, but David, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We're told at the beginning of verse 6 that David was greatly distressed. We're given the reason for that distress. And then we are told what David did in that situation. So let's press in on this. How is it that someone who has lost everything except what he carried, how is it that he's able to find hope and strength? While the text doesn't elaborate on the specifics, I think we can draw from the biblical accounts up to this point in the Bible and even past it and our own personal experiences to discern several tactics that David employed to strengthen himself in the Lord his God. First, I believe that David reflected on God's mighty works to deliver Israel. 
He would have recalled God's rescue of Israel from Egypt. How God parted the seas. He would have reminded himself of God's protection and provision in the wilderness over 40 years. He would have, in his own perhaps experience, seen and remembered and heard the stories from his grandfather and great-grandfather of God's many deliverances during the period of Judges. And then David has his own personal experience with God where he's reminding himself of the many times God has saved him from the, the paw of the lion or the bear, even from the hand of Goliath and many deliverances from Saul. Perhaps even chapter 29 would have been a source of comfort for David. God, you delivered us from having to fight against Israel, and so I trust that you will help in this situation. I think what's so significant is that we understand that David remembered, I can only assume that David remembered that although he had lost every earthly treasure, his family and his stuff, he had not lost the Lord. Faithful to his people, God is a redeemer, a protector, a provider. He was convinced that the Lord was his God. This covenant-keeping God who had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and had kept every one of them, who had promised that David would be Israel's king and had given him these wives, David trusted in God's word. And then we see in verses 7 through 8 that David sought the Lord's counsel and help. The Lord graciously provided David the means by which he could communicate with his God. Remember, Abiathar is Eli's great-great-grandson. We saw early in 1 Samuel that God was going to wipe out the family of Eli because of their sin. But in chapter 14, when when Doeg, the Edomite, came to Nob and killed all the priests, Abiathar escaped and he took the ephod with him. Again, a small thing? This, this, this item that God used to determine yes or no questions, this, this ephod that by which the priests could pray and ask God for discernment, and it served as a means of accessing God's mind on certain matters, and you have a priest of that line who's now a part of your 600 men, I mean, God has given David not only a history, but also the means by which God can speak to him. These are all provisions of God's grace. And they all come together beautifully in this text so that David is able to take in his moment of need and ask God for help. And the Lord answered him in verse 8, promised him a victorious rescue. Now, I think if you were reading this as the first readers of 1 Samuel, And you're either, we don't know exactly when it was written, whether it was during the time of the exile, so you're in a foreign land, or whether it was time during the divided monarchy where you had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. But I I can't help but wonder if these first readers would, would see the stark contrast between David in chapter 30 and Saul in chapter 28. Do you remember? Saul is going to fight the Philistines and he is terrified by their numbers and so he prays, God doesn't answer him. He tries to divine through prophets and dreams but God gives him no answer. 
Multiple times, Saul is asking God to tell him what's going to happen. And because Saul is under God's wrath and judgment, God is not going to speak to him anymore. But in this text, the first time David asks God for help, God answers him. And so, as you read this, you've got to see, oh man, this guy David is truly marked by God. God is keeping promises that he's made to David to make him the king God is going to answer him when he prays. And surely that would have been a a comfort to these first readers, that they would see God's covenant faithfulness, perhaps apply it to themselves as they wait upon the Lord for deliverance and the restoration of his people. But what about for us today? Well, praise the Lord that we have a a written testimony of God's many acts of faithfulness, deliverance, and provision. Praise the Lord that we have a personal history as well. We're not just, I mean, not just, as though that's a weak thing, a small thing, reading God's word. But thankfully, God in his grace also walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He also comforts us in times of great trial. He speaks to us through his word. And so we can stand here today as people who see and savor our Lord. So let me just provide a couple practical reminders for us as we navigate a time in which we may find ourselves suffering great loss and how we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. A couple practical examples. First, we need to read the Bible. I told you it was practical. It's not rocket science. How did David know God had done great things in Israel's past? Well, he had heard the stories. There was a a great oral tradition where it was carefully passed down. They had the written law, the first five books of the Old Testament. David read the word. We need to read and expose ourselves to the wideness and variety of Scripture by reading it, all of it. So if you've never heard of the McShane Bible reading plan, I can't recommend it enough. Robert Murray McShane was a pastor a long time ago, and he developed a Bible reading plan for his congregation, where by reading through the Bible, you would cover the Old Testament once in a calendar year, you would cover the New Testament and the Psalms twice. Now, that seems like a lot for those of us who are just hoping to get through the Bible once in one year, but what McShane does is he gives every day four separate readings. This is a commercial, so I'm not getting paid Um, Our brother is in heaven rejoicing over God. He's not worried about royalties. Um, But this is, it's so great because you can do two readings in the morning that are designed for you as an individual and then two readings in the evening that are great for instructing your family. And over the course of those four readings, you're going to be going from Old Testament to New Testament. You'll be going into the Psalms. And so there's a lot of diversity, but you get to see and feel the whole weight of Scripture. So whatever you do, whether it's McShane or not, read God's Word. And second, memorize Scripture. Let me just rehearse for you because I haven't memorized these yet, but I'm working on them. January's memory verse. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
February's verse of the month. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And this month's verse, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. I mean, if you're suffering right now, these three verses that we are trying to memorize as a church would be a great source of comfort to you. They would be a strong reminder of who your God is and why you can trust Him. Here's a third practical reminder of how we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Not only to read the Bible and memorize Scripture, but to reflect on God's faithfulness to His people throughout history and to you through your relationship to Him through Christ. God has proven Himself to be faithful. He doesn't have to do for us what he does for the characters in Scripture. We don't need to see another Dead Sea or Red Sea parted. We don't need to see the dead raised to life. We don't need to see a sack lunch feed 5,000 people. We don't need to see Jesus in his transfigured form. But we do need to trust God. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite portions of Scripture. So we, don't, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then Paul says not to minimize the suffering of God's people, but he says when you compare today and what you're dealing with, with heaven and eternity, this is a perspective that you will get. Listen to what he says. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And so whether you are dealing with the loss of a spouse through death or divorce, whether you are dealing with chronic illness or catastrophic events, the lost job or the transition to a new place, or it's just the daily grind of life that is just rubbing you down and wearing you down, none of it's going to go away quickly. Maybe it won't even go away completely. But you have a God who is actively at work in you to help grow your faith. Who has not left you alone in your suffering. The Christian life requires a marathon outlook, not a sprint. And so maybe we need to adjust our expectations. That God answers and his provisions, they may come and they may not completely resolve our circumstances, but they will give us just enough strength to make it one more day. Here's a fourth and final application for how we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God. Not only should we read the Bible and memorize it, 
Not only should we reflect on God's faithfulness, but this is, this is a really strange thing, you may think. We need to prepare for suffering by building strong relationships and friendships in this church. Like David and his men, some circumstances will be so overwhelming they will rock our faith if they don't break it. And what we don't want to be in that moment is alone. We don't want to have just come in as consumers to church. I'm just here to get my daily jolt of spirituality, and then I go back into the world and I do my thing. But I don't need the rest of y'all, because y'all have problems, and I'm just, I've got enough problems in my life. I can't bear anybody else's burdens. I just need to get mine and get out. That kind of mindset will be devastating to you when you hit rock bottom. Because you've not developed relationships with people who will come alongside of you and care for you, who you trust and who know you and can speak into you, you will have cut yourselves off from a real means of grace. So I encourage you to build those kind of relationships now rather than when the crisis comes. Everything changes after these verses. Now you're thinking to myself, man, James, it's been a half hour and you've gotten eight verses? Good grief, the rest of the chapter, there's so much stuff left. It all moves quickly, though, because God promised not only would David have overtake them, but he will surely rescue and he will recover everything. And so what's to drag our feet on that? Look at what happens after David strengthened himself in the Lord. He sought the Lord through the priest and the ephod, and everything changed. These weary men are given strength to go and chase down the Amalekites. Verses 9 through 31, we see this. We see this truth. When God graciously restores what has been taken, we ought to be generous. And, I, and, and again, this is two parts. So verses 9 through 20, God's grace sustained and restored David and his weary men. So I'm going to read this, but I'm not going to give a lot of commentary on it because it's pretty self-explanatory. Look at verse 9. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirits revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights." David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Chetherites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. 
And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him. And said, this is David's spoil. Let's just pause there for a moment. Look at the totality of God when he keeps his promise. Nothing was lost. Not a thing. These men are so exhausted that 200 of them couldn't go any further and they stayed back. They had marched 50-some miles over rough terrain. They had this emotional toll taken on them. And maybe it was wise to have a rear guard staying back, but here they, they discover this half-dead Egyptian. Again, can I point out the small providences of God? This guy in this great big wide expanse, in this open territory, what are the odds of them finding this guy? And then, what are the odds that this guy is a part of that band? I mean, this is providence. This is God's grace at work. And so they help nourish this man back to some strength. He tells them that he's a band, part of that raiding band, which you got to think, whoa, like by that admission... David and his men are like, let's kill him, let's kill him, let's kill him. But they wait, and he delivers the Amalekites to them. And David recovers everything that had been taken. They, in spite of their exhaustion, kept pursuing because they trusted in God and the promises that he had made. And God gave their enemy into their hand, and they recovered all just as God had promised Now let's look at what happens next in verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow and who had been left at the brook Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. This had to be a joyful reunion. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then, then, all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute. And a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. 
It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jitter, in Eror, in Sifmoth, in Estimoa, in Recall, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borshan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. David's response to God's gracious restoration is to be generous. David isn't about keeping score here. You see his generosity as he protects the men who could not go any further from worthless men. He shows wisdom and he then, these men are threatening the joyful celebration with their stingy minds. Oh, they can just get their wives and their kids, but their stuff? No, they didn't go and so they don't deserve. That's not the heart of a generous person, Right? But David says, this is not the way it's going to be. No one's going to listen to you in this matter. And he makes it a rule. And apparently, it stayed in place for hundreds of years, even until the time that 1 Samuel was written. David's wisdom showed generous and wise leadership that was a blessing to his men in verses 21 through 25. And then we see that he blessed generations after him in verse 25 because that rule stayed in effect. Now look at verses 26 through 31, and you see that David, wise and generous leadership, was a blessing to the elders of Israel, of Judah. Even now, while Saul still lives, we see glimpses of David's future as one that God would use to protect his people from their enemies. David, what has God done through David? He has restored what they had lost. And then he has made alliances with his gifts that would prove beneficial. Later, we will see in 2 Samuel chapter 2 that it would be these very same leaders who would be the first to say after Saul's death, yes, David is the king. And here's where we see the grace of God. God had restored life to these men. He had given them back their wives and their sons and daughters. But we see in the the Egyptian a little bit of a parable, I think. Here is a man who was by all accounts dead. Three days, three nights, no food or water. He'd been sick. He was weak and helpless. And what do we see? David restores his life physically, giving him nourishment. David also gives this man his freedom He was a slave. And David said, you trade this information, you're free to go. And this man also led David to the Amalekites, where David was able to rescue and deliver the families of his men and the children. And then we see what David does for the leaders of Judah. He restores what was taken from their territories with a gift. He defeated an enemy that was a real and present danger. Now, let me just ask you this. Where else in all of Scripture do we ever read of someone who can not only provide temporal good to his people, but also set them free from bondage? Isn't it David's greater son, Jesus? Isn't this the promise that Jesus makes to each and every one of us? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, yea, rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. 
I mean, this is the promise that God makes to us through His Son. That He will not only restore what has been lost, but He will give you more than you ever deserve. I mean, this is not a, a, an exact trade. I mean, there's always differences from what the Scripture is telling us in this story and the promises that are made to us in Christ. All that David had restored to him was good for him in that day. But what Jesus' promise is, is that he will set you free from your sin, which is good today and on that day of judgment. It's, it's a promise that will pay dividends for all eternity. I wonder if as you read this, you might find yourself thinking, well, what happens if I tried to strengthen myself, but it did not work? What happens if depression, or what happens if loneliness, or anxiety, or fear, and I'm, I'm using Bible verses, I'm taking them every day like aspirin, and I'm, and I'm praying, and I've got friends around me, and I'm, I'm still not happy. I'm still not whole. Friend, let me just say, if that is where you're at, you can do this. You can cling to the promise that in spite of this hard season, that everything you pray for in Christ is yes and amen from the Father. That there is a salvation that will outlast your depression. There is a salvation that is greater than your fear. And it is okay to confess the weakness so that his strength may be made perfect. It is okay to be transparent with your brothers and sisters here and say, I am struggling and I'm checking all the boxes, but it is not easy. And we can speak to you that God's grace is sufficient. Yes, we will walk with you as long as this takes. We will wait with you. We will watch over you. And God will see you through this season because he's promised to. I wonder if the events of 1 Samuel chapter 29 and 30 might be the circumstances that prompted David to write Psalm 37. And so, as we close, I just encourage you, read that psalm this afternoon and see if you might see shadows of chapters 29 and 30 in Psalm 37. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast down. For the Lord upholds his hand. Lord God, we pray that as we come to the end of this text, that we would know you through your Son. You have promised to strengthen the discouraged and the weary, and then to restore what has been lost. Help us as your people to make every effort, humanly speaking, to know our God to ask questions about who he is of brothers and sisters in Christ or of Christians if we are not a Christian, to say, I want to know this Savior who makes these kinds of promises. I see faith in you and I wonder, how is it that you're able to encounter such hardships and difficulties in life and still have strength to carry on? We pray that you would prompt godliness godliness within your people and conversations for your people to have, that we may see people know you and enter into that covenant relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Lord, help your people to know you. 
and to rely and trust on the promises that you've made to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Let's take a moment before the worship team leads us in this great song of more than I deserve. Um, Let's just take a moment and reflect on what we've heard in God's word. And then Joel's going to lead us in singing, but let's respond to him if he's been speaking, whether it's for salvation, whether it's for hope, or whether it's to give hope to others. Uh, May we be obedient to God in this time.